Okay, so <clears throat> this, this session, what we're going to deal with is, in, in your lives, uh, hopefully some of the things you've heard have challenged you about where you are and where you need to go. This is the Christian life. It will be the Christian life for you in 20 years. It will be the Christian life for you in 40 years. And for some of you, 80 years down the road, it will still be the Christian life. It's not gonna, that part's not going to change for any of us. One of the things I thought <clears throat> foolishly as I got older is that being a follower of Jesus Christ would get easier. I forgot about a principle I teach everybody else. If you are faithful, what does God do with responsibility? He increases it. I don't know why I let that one slip. Uh, because I, I love to remind everyone else that this is the way it works. And that with our relationship with the Lord, that's a sign of God's favor, God's reward to us. That He counts us faithful, and therefore He gives us more responsibility. What a wonderful thing to rejoice in. And we should pray for that. Lord, make me faithful so that I can grow up and... Make me the grown-up in the room and so forth. <clears throat> so what I want to do is spend a little bit of time talking with you about how to prepare your life for change. And it's going to be a process that you're going to, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. And so therefore, if it's something we're going to be doing, for the rest of our lives, it would probably be good counsel for us to figure out how to do it in a way that's godly, in a way that's productive, in a way that's right. Uh, you know, you, you, uh, you have people who come to convictions about things and they immediately want everybody else in the room, right, to, to, follow, to have that conviction. You know, <clears throat> and uh, it doesn't work out too hot, does it? No, like it. Well, it won't in your marriage either as you change, and you need to be able to have these conversations within your marriage and with your children and with others about change, uh, because none of us change at the same rate, and we don't change at the same level, and, and so it's important to recognize that you and I are not the Holy Spirit. Now, intellectually, that's a wonderful thing. We get it, right? Practically, that's another issue. <clears throat> so I want to read uh, chapter 12 of Romans. This is a passage that <clears throat> you're, you're all familiar with. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So here we're given instructions that... <clears throat> You are to, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
This involves some analysis, what we call the economic analysis of the Christian faith. If I am bought with a price, and I am not my own, there's an analysis with that, isn't it? It's, it's ownership. And we are owned by the Lord. And for us as believers, we actually really enjoy the fact that we're owned by Christ. I mean, that's a great joy. I am owned. I am a property that belongs to God. Now, in God's estimation of that, there, it's more to it than that. He's my kinsman redeemer. But He calls us more than that. He calls us friends. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're brothers. And as you get older uh, in the faith, and some of you may have already experienced this, there is when the Lord Jesus Christ... <clears throat> Uh, his family was coming to him, his mothers and his brothers, and they said, your mother and brothers are outside. And Jesus made this remarkable statement. And he says, who are my mothers, my sisters, my brothers, but they that do the will of God. And there is a family of blood. But I hope that every one of us come to experience that the ties of blood are nowhere near like the ties of faith. I have watched families fall apart. I mean, horribly, just awful things. But in the family of God, there is a unity that comes to God's people. Like when we get together, it's really amazing. Uh, The brother and I were talking. And there's an affinity among us in, in the sense of knowing that we're forgiven people, that we're sinners, that... We've been redeemed, that God deals with us. He talks to us. He directs us. What an incredible and wonderful thing. You know, I have neighbors I can't share that with. I have family members I can't share that with. In my family, <clears throat> just share a little bit of my story. We, when we're, we're a mixed family. When I say mixed, I mean like in mixed up. Uh, <clears throat> we come from three different marriages. Uh, my mother uh, went a- ran away and got married at the age of 14. And uh, she had to go to another state with uh, the man who was eventually become my dad. Uh, <clears throat> and, and he thought she was 17. And if you saw a picture of my mother, you would think she's 17. Okay. My dad did not know until the day that they were sliding off to Mississippi that the woman he was about to marry was 14 years old. And Mississippi, you had to be 14 to get married. Alabama had to be 16. So guess why she wanted to go to Mississippi? My grandparents knew nothing of this until that Saturday morning. Quite a surprise. My dad was an Army guy. And um, so uh, they wind up going off in, uh, he's in the military in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I have a brother that was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He gets out of the military, goes to Chicago, uh, which is where he was from. And I'm three months in the cooker when uh, things fell apart. 
and mom came back home. And so uh, I was born there when my mother was 16. I was a $2 baby. Uh, and that's how much it cost for me to be born at that time. That's been a while, guys. Uh, <clears throat> my stepdad, I, I did not meet my real father until I was 29 years old. And I was one of those guys that actually never had an interest. Uh, that, that came from my brother that was older than I was. And <clears throat> my stepdad, who I knew as dad, had been married, had four children, divorced. He married my mom. He was 41 years old when he married my mom, who was 19. Okay. <clears throat> I was three years old at the time. We had been farmed out down to an aunt and an uncle uh, in a good way. In, I had an aunt and uncle that were uh, Christians, and, and we were almost adopted by them. And then my mom and, and dad got married, my stepdad. Uh, and then they had four more boys. So we had, uh, among the group, nine boys, and all of us had a sister. And uh, so... The, the, this this was kind of the, the family, uh, and if you look at my family history, like many, there there were, in the generation before us, uh, th there were hand grenades that went off. In, in the generation, of my parents' generations, they pulled the tanks in. In the generation I was born in, somebody let loose the nuclear bomb. I mean, the devastation is just incredible. Now, in the midst of this, God plucked me out. And I'll just share with you my, my, my story. My grandmother and my grandfather on my mother's side were Christians. They were believers. We were on a 297-acre farm, and we were at liberty to kind of go across the field and stay with them wherever we wanted to. But if you went to my grandparents' house, on one side of the house there's three bedrooms, grandpa's, grandmas and a guest, but guests did not include grandchildren. Grandchildren were in grandma's room on the extra bed. I uh, wonder why that was. <clears throat> I, I didn't figure that out until I was in my 20s, how that worked. And so I would go over and stay, and my grandmother was the most delightful thing. My grandmother prayed every night, and she would get to praying about my cousins and their sins. It was delightful. I mean, hear about these wicked reprobates that I'm kin to. And then she would pray about my brothers and all their sins, and man, that just was sweet to hear. But then the woman couldn't leave well enough alone. She would get around to praying about my sins and my need for Christ, and I would roll over to the wall and pull, take the pillow, right, and, and pull it because God was using her prayers to soften my heart. And I didn't want my heart softened because I didn't need Jesus. I was okay. It was all those cousins and brothers. I mean, she had that part right. And so the Lord used my grandmother's testimony uh, to soften my heart to the gospel. <clears throat> so uh, I was converted at the age of 17, and the Lord began to disciple me and and to cause me to love to read the Bible and those kinds of things. And went off to school, uh, and there's where I met my wife. 
And, uh, uh, and then a few years later, at the age of 29, my brother had gotten in contact with my biological dad. And I thought, okay, that's nice. And he goes to see him and all that. And so they do this big planning thing, and, and we got to go to Chicago, and we're going to meet all these people. I'm like, okay, whatever. So I go there, and as I begin to prepare for this, by this time I'm, gather, I'm getting some maturity to my Christian life. And, um, and, I, and I was a reader, and, uh, but I was also a successful businessman. And to interrupt my schedule that I'm doing for Jesus, to want me to go to Chicago to meet a guy who was my dad 20-something years ago, nearly 30, this is just really inconvenient. So I go, and I meet this guy. And, uh, <clears throat> and I find out uh, he, he's remarried. And the lady that he remarried, remarkable woman, just incredible. And so, uh, but he, he, uh, he wasn't exactly the most responsible individual in the world. And so a few years later, in 1995, he comes south to live in Alabama around the two children that he had. And we found out we had a half-brother in North Carolina. And all kinds of things we find, you know, you, you just, the, the story unravels as it unravels. You don't even know that you're peeling a layer of an onion. And so he comes down, and by this time the Lord has, uh, I'm, I'm past my uh, 35th year, and, and the Lord is, is really beginning to change my life. And, and I began to realize that we needed to reestablish intergenerational continuity in our family. I mean, if you were in my family, wouldn't you think that might be a good place to start? And I began to be convicted about it. And I went through the scriptures and I was studying this. I'm like, Lord, this intergenerational connectivity, God's plan was for my parents to live in my house so they could be around my children, right, as they, they grew up. This was God's plan. This is the, the scriptural norm. It doesn't always work out that way, but this ought to be the norm. And so <clears throat> we began to try to recover uh, in the care of my mom and my stepdad and then my biological dad. Well, we were blessed in the fact <clears throat> that my biological dad, has his health deteriorated, moved into the house, and he died in my home. And so I had the privilege of honoring my father in the last few years of his life, a man I actually didn't even want to get to know. And yet, in God's providence, God brought it and started a ministry out of it. And so in our community now, we have a full-fledged work that we do uh, trying to cre recreate intergenerational continuity. Now, <clears throat> this is important in terms of the, the concept of change because what's happened is, I don't know how all the things are where y'all are at, but typically across the country, we have intergenerational fractionalization that is incredible. Right? A lot of times you have intergenerational families, they won't even talk to each other. Uh, it, it's, it's a mess. And if there's any group of people that can reconnect that, it ought to be us. That, that belongs to us. We're the grown-ups in the room. So here we have uh, 
and, and, and some of these things that happen to us, God, you know, God in His good providence sends these things to us because He recognizes we need to understand His ways. Because my thoughts are not His thoughts. My ways are not His ways. And I and you need God to teach us what that is. And then it has to convert into the way we actually live, what we do as a people. Oftentimes, what we've done now is that we have warehoused our elderly. We put them in old folks' warehouses. That used to never be. So why did we ever let that get away from us? It's an interesting question, isn't it? <clears throat> and if it's going to be recovered, it will be us that recovers it. Okay. So in your... <clears throat> In your life, he says, don't be conformed to this world. Now, when he's talking about don't be conformed to this world, he's talking about being molded by their ethics, molded by their attitudes, molded by their lifestyles, molded by their purposes. Don't be conformed to this world. Well, that means you've got to have some way of analyzing what that is, right? Well, <clears throat> the way they used to train guys to spot counterfeit money, and I, I suggest to us that this is the most authentic way for us as Christians to know about making changes, is they got so familiar with the Federal Reserve notes. I always thought that was funny. Federal Reserve notes and counterfeit. Uh, you know about paper currency, that's kind of like the oxymoron of whatever. Uh, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's God's humor at play and judgment, sort of. And uh, so... They, they got so familiar with it that it, if it wasn't that, if it was anything else, they knew it was wrong. So my suggestion to us as Christians is, is that we get so familiar with God's Word and God's way that we know everything else is wrong. Now, sometimes what we try to do is study evil that we might can recognize it. And as believers, if we're not careful, we'll become better at cursing the darkness than we are at lighting a candle. Anybody can curse the darkness. And there are those that this is their life. Their life is cursing the darkness. They never build anything. All they know how to do. And it's such a sad world. So you're to be transformed, I am to be transformed, or that is metamorphosized, changed little by little by the renewing of your mind. But it's not just renewing my mind or putting knowledge into it. It has a directed purpose that I may prove. And that is proving by lifestyle, by application, what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. So when we talk about being doers of the word and preparing our lives for change, in your own expectations, you should expect that God is going to change you as you go along in life. This should be an expectation. It is a part of the maturing process. It's not going to happen overnight. And God is going to teach you and educate you primarily through the following methods. Number one is His Word. Uh, the Word of God is is what causes us to know the thoughts of God. Remember what we read in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us. So here we have God's mind. I don't have all of God's mind, 
but there's things that he's chosen to reveal we have. And I never have a problem with the secret things of God. The problem I have is the things I do know, right? And living in conformity to the things I know. That's the challenge I have. I know what God's will is. He tells me in the scriptures what it is. And so you're going to change. So what are some areas? How are some changes? He does the word. Now the word is in your private study. The word is through the preached word that you hear as you come together as a congregation of people. Now it's interesting that another one of the great ways that God changes us is some of the stuff we've been doing here. You sit around and you start talking about the Word of God and the application of God's Word. And uh, we were talking about <clears throat> when you go to conferences and things, and, and my hope here, guys, my, my hope is, is not, you know, come away and, you know, it's interesting stuff and, and all this, but that it, it sets for you a pattern, a desire to want to pursue God and to change according to the Word of God and to just love the fact that God is so integrated into our lives to lead us, direct us, and change us. And, it, and it's a joyful thing to be changed and educated by God. And so he uses the word there, and then he uses the fellowship of the believers. Now, my Reformed brothers back in the 1600s wrote uh, about the marks of a true church. Uh, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm an elder in a the congregation there, and I think they got it wrong. Now that goes over in a Presbyterian meeting like a lead balloon. Okay? But I believe that the mark of a true church is very easy to identify. It says in the scriptures, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples that you have love one to another. Now, I'm just a country boy, but I picked up on that. That this is the mark of genuine believers. A genuine love and a care one for another. So God sets priorities in the scriptures for you and I. And the priority starts, first of all, with our self-government. You cannot give to other people what you do not have. Okay? Have you ever been around uh, people? You know, it's, it's the wonderful thing. The guy who always loses his temper telling people to calm down. I mean, that just works great. But you and I can't give to other people what we don't have. So we got to know, like in Proverbs 25, 28, he that hath no control over his own spirit is like a city broken down and without walls. Now, what that means, and probably, you know, the city used to have the, the walls, and it was their protection from outside influences. And if you and I are always influenced by our circumstances in our lifestyles and our decision-making, what we know is this. Our government isn't coming from the inside out. It's coming from the outside in. You will be, and I will be, an unstable person if that's the case. We'll never live from principle. So we have the Word of God. We have the, the Word of God in our personal studies. We hear it in, our, in the preaching, in our studies together, our communication, our networking. The Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. We forget about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, learning how to walk with Him and talk with Him daily. I'm, I'm, don't, I, my prayer life, I don't pray long periods of time, and I'm not the example. Jesus uh, gave us an example of the prayer, and it wasn't very long. But it's interesting in the Scriptures how we're told about praying continuously. You know, all through the day, Lord help me, uh, I have this problem. And uh, I'm blessed that with the people that interact with me a lot, I can just stop and say, Daniel and I do it all the time. Let's pray. Okay? And we'll have a prayer about what we do. And, and, and I get to do that all day long, just about. Uh, even with unbelievers, I'll say, well, you know, I don't do anything like that unless I pray about it, so let's pray. And I'll just start praying. Well, they didn't get all the conversations, so they got to hang on to the phone. So they get to hear me pray. So... <clears throat> We, we have the Holy Spirit, and then we have uh, this, this fellowship. So God uses these things, but there's other things that God uses to disciple us and to train us. Because once you know the Word of God, remember that the, the problem is not just knowing the Word of God, right? We have to do the Word of God. It has to convert to reality in our lives, the way we actually behave. And it, it affects things in two ways. Uh, not in our thinking, but in our speech and in our behavior, how we actually conduct ourselves. Now, <clears throat> with that, in order for it to have effect in our lives, God is going to send things that are going to help us to recognize the need to change. And God does that through people, pressures, and problems. Have you ever wondered this? You hear us as Christians talking about it. Why is there such a hostility to trials in the Christian life? It's a good question, isn't it? I would like to be a Christian without trials. So you want to be the first one in history to pull this off. Okay? So what if, as believers, we recognized that God's design for our lives is that we're always changing, we're always growing, we're always maturing, and we would embrace these things? Not run away from them, not hide from them, not succumb to them, but embrace them as the gifts of God that they are. The perspective is just totally different. If we can embrace people, pressures, and problems within the context of God's gift to train us, to correct us, to redirect us, to make us more aware of who He is and what He wants in our lives. And if we can embrace those things and look for change, how these things ought to cause us to change, to redirect. Now, this is important for you and I. I have a notebook that I use, and I'm just going to share personal testimony. I'm not the standard. I'm just telling you how it works out in my life. Okay? <clears throat> but I have a notebook. And in this notebook, i got a bunch of notebooks. I keep a, you know, if you come into my office, i got this whole line of notebooks, and it has to do with my relationship with God and changes I need to make and maturities. And you look at that and you say, man, this guy's got a long way to go. And you would be right. Because one of them is for me and my wife. 
changes in my relationship with my wife. Believe it or not, our relationship has altered a little bit since we married. And our goals and our objectives and what's important or not important have changed. Now there's a scriptural passage there that says, Tim Yarborough, you are to dwell with your wife with understanding. And there's two types of knowledge that are involved in this, and one of them is gnosis and the other one is epinosis. Gnosis is general knowledge of women. Let me tell you, that doesn't work when you're dealing with your wife. Epinosis is particular knowledge. And that is particular knowledge of this woman that God ordained before the foundation of the world to be my wife. And that I am to understand her. Now, I used to mention to God occasionally that I thought that was probably the hardest commandment in Scripture. Uh, trying to understand my wife because of the spaghetti. It, you know, it, it, it just, just goes like this, and we, we would have these conversations, and the only person present was her. And I'm still trying to figure out what she's saying. And she seems to enjoy it. And I had this experience, and it radically changed my mind. I, I began to understand my wife a little bit better. She's expecting her third child. I'm on a job doing a high-voltage control work on an oil, oil refinery. And I come in at 1 o'clock, and, and I'm on an oil refinery, right? So you can imagine what I look like. I'm doing high-voltage. I'm up and, and all this. And, and I get a shower, and I clean up, and I, I lay down in the bed at 2 o'clock. I have to meet the engineers at 5 my wife rolls over, puts her head on my shoulder, and she wants to talk. And my wife talked for two hours. She's expecting a baby. I did not honestly say one word. And my wife, after two hours, reached up, kissed me on the cheek, and said, this was the most wonderful conversation. <laughs> I'm like, I have no clue what just happened. But I also know I'm not going to sleep because i got to get up. I have to be out at the job site in one hour. And, and I kept thinking, what, what happened here? And I come to realize that all my wife was wanting me to do was understand her. And I'm like, Lord, have I been so neglectful in the changes in my marriage that what I have done is my wife had to roll over at 2 o'clock in the morning, put her head on my shoulder in order to get attention from me. Well, the answer was yes. I was building a career. I was building a company. Uh, for my family, of course. Right? And it, it began to, to say to me, I have to change here. I have to make changes. So I have this notebook that is for me and my wife and changes that I need to make with my wife. And I check in with her pretty regularly about the trust meter. And there was a time, fellas, where my wife did not trust my reactions. 
because she knew my history. And so because of that, she was hesitant to be honest with me because she was concerned about my reactions. Now, I, I wasn't basically a hothead, but I knew how to put the clamp on things. Right? I mean, I can just punish you with silence. And, and she wanted to express some legitimate concerns. And, and so I had to learn, it wasn't about my wife, it was about pleasing God. I had to make changes to please God. And so I have this notebook, and it's, it's this list of changes. I need to be renewed in terms of my relationship with this woman. I've been married to for 42 years. And I'm still discovering things about her. You men that are going to be getting married, don't take it for granted. Okay? And, and you're going to need to make changes in your marriage. And you're going to have to prepare your marriage for changes. Okay, so... What's our game plan if we're going to make changes? Like, we've had changes of convictions over the years. And, and in doing that, we have to have conversations. We have to work it out because I need to be able to walk in unity with my wife. And then some of the other things I've discovered in making changes is that I had certain preferences. And a preference is not the same as a conviction, right? When I first started mentoring young men, uh, and some of you know this, some of you don't, but I've had a mentoring program. This is my 38th year. I've had a little over 400 young men who have come through there, I think about 35 young women, and, and today I do a lot of young married couples. When I first started out, I shared this with, with uh, someone, I forget who, who it was I shared it with, but I wanted all those young men, Kevin, to have my convictions. I wanted them to have my convictions because, man, they're right, they're good. After about two years in, you know what I found out? They had my convictions. Like a ton of bricks had hit me. Because you see, when the storms of life come, if the convictions you have don't belong to you, you will not defend them. That was like an eye-opener to me. And so when the pressures came to them, my convictions became their preferences. Now, it's okay to change preferences. You know, I mean, preferences have a lot of flexibility to them. I mean, we can use them for good or for ill. But I saw this happening, and I was like, of course, you know, the, originally your first thought is the problem is with whom? Oh, them, of course. <laughs> and as the Lord began to teach me, I realized that wasn't true. And I had to sit down with them and say, look, I've, I've made a really bad mistake here. So I have to change the direction that I'm going. So this, this was a change. And it was a change for the good. I, I didn't set out to do wrong by these young men. I set out to do right, and I just didn't have enough experience to know how to define it. Now, you look back on it and you say, well, Mr. Yarbrough, were you really that dumb? Oh, yes, I was. I mean, I worked at it. And, and it wasn't that you, you did that. So the change is there. You're going to make changes in terms of your economic life. God is going to educate you about how to deal with economics. It is probably one of the areas where Christians as a whole 
are superiorly ignorant of God's ways in economics. Several years ago, our young men put on a conference at our congregation. Every year, called the Forgotten Truth Conference, and we intentionally pick topics that we know normally don't get taught. Like we had one on uh, Christian charity versus humanistic charity. What a great conference that was. And this one was uh, Christian economics and status economics. So since it's our conference, we get to assign the topics. And so we assigned the topics and we particularly picked pastors that we knew had never touched on these subjects before in their entire life. And so your job was to come and to speak about biblical economics and just weights and measures. And I couldn't tell you how many times with these different conferences we've had pastors say, I don't know how I got through seminary. And we never touched on this subject because, you know, we have never had a controversy with superlapsarianism in our congregation in all this time. But you know what my people do? They deal with economics every single day. And when they come in for counseling, there's two items that are generally at the top of the list. You know what they are? Money and sex. <laughs> Seems like we just didn't get over the teenage years, right? Conversations in the Walmart parking lot. Okay. And so you're going to make changes in your economic life, and you need to be able to develop these goals and aspirations together, and you make the changes together. Your role as a husband is to, in the household is to be able to create unity, to create that trust that you can walk together. You can't be arbitrary with it. So you make these, these changes when you have children. Children change the dynamic of a household tremendously. How you raise children is vital. And you're going to make changes in your parenting uh, as God teaches you. You can have other parents who can give you all the counsel and advice, and it can be helpful and it can be good, but then God's going to give you your children. And God wants you to disciple your children for Him. The principles remain the same. The application is different. It, it depends. And there are things that only the parents are going to know. But you're going to have to make these changes. Well, if you have a process for change, why are you changing? What is it about God's Word that has convinced you to change? You need to know that you're making changes for a reason. Now, there are some other things in terms of preparing your life for change uh, that is important. Number one, how you develop your circle of friends. If, uh, if you've never seen, we do this thing we call how to prioritize uh, your life according to the Word of God. I don't know if I did this. Did I do the circle of influence last year? Yes. You all remember? Yes. Okay, so I'll take just a moment and do that. <clears throat> but... Uh, we use this, it, it, and it helps clarify decision-making and why you want to make changes. Self-government is here, and it's always in the context of family government. All of us are involved in a family in one way or another. Okay, Even the orphans that we deal with are somehow connected. And so you make changes in your self-government, like put away malice and anger and bitterness and and you, you, you know, you're constantly dealing with these things. Like if you have a problem with laziness, 
Okay? Is that an issue? In fact, it's such an issue, God says if you have a problem with lasers, that you are a companion of a thief. How's that for stroking your ego? Okay? If you're lazy, this is God's testimony to Tim Yarborough. He says, Tim Yarborough, if you're sluggard, if you're lazy, you are a companion of a thief. Well, is God right? Okay. So I got to do something about that, don't I? All right. So within the context of my family, then can I make economic decisions and can I always make economic decisions on the basis of God's priority of how we handle economics with the family? Yes. If you do not care for your own family, what's God's testimony of you and I? You are worse than an infidel. So therefore, can I conclude that whatever financial decisions I make must always start with my family? Yeah, that's where God put me. Okay, And so, in my family is where I should have my greatest influence with my time involvement, etc., right here. And I'll show you real quickly as we go through this how this develops. Now, the second group here is what we call the intentional circle of influence. Now, fellows, I will tell you this, all of you, and you already know this, and it's already happened to almost all of you. You will either choose that circle of influence or it will choose you. Now, God gives us some instructions about how to choose circles of influence. A companion of wise men will what? Will be wise, but a companion of fools will be destroyed. Okay? Now, do you have people in your circle of influence that are fools? If you do, God warns you. God warns me. They will have a very negative effect on our lives. But in this, go to Psalm 1. Right? And God says, Blessed is the man that doesn't stand in the way of the sinners and doesn't walk and he doesn't sit with these, these kind of people. In other words, he doesn't build intimate relationships with them that are intended to influence his circles. Now what I mean by that, it's not that we don't interact. It's not that, but they don't become that intimate circle of wise people. I want these people to influence my family, and they're important. <clears throat> I had a guy in our town. I do have a, an intimate circle of influence on my life and my family life, and I have a guy in my town who said to me, well, you know, you're kind of exclusionary with, with the people you let get close to you. More evident than I thought. This is good. Uh, he was, he didn't think that was the great thing. So, but you want these people to protect you from yourself. You need brothers and sisters who will encourage you, they will provoke you. As you grow in maturity, you will have a lot of if you're if you're wise, you will have one-on-one -on -one relationships into the unbelieving world. But it's not like you get a congregation of influence. And there you have to be cautious, even with that. 
It's not that we have to be afraid of it. We just have to remember who the grown-up in the room is. Okay? That's us. Now, when I move out from this circle here to this circle here, what happens to my time investment? It goes down, doesn't it? And when that goes down, what happens to my influence? Okay, it goes down. All right? This is why this circle is important, because if we're going to, lo to leaven the community that we're in, what we're going to need is a lot of brothers and sisters out here leavening in that culture. It doesn't take you very long before you realize that you can't do it all. And it takes a lot of believers, and so it really makes us pray and work and, and, and with, with our fellow believers. But when I move from circle two to circle three, what happens to my time investment? goes down, doesn't it? What happens to my influence? It goes down. Now, in our scheme of things, we have circle four, which would be the state, and circle five, which would be the feds. Now, do you know how much influence I have at the state level? Probably about as much as you do. The only time they ever ask me for anything is about once every four years, and guess what they want? Oh, they would like contributions to the campaign and my vote, right? And so I have no influence there, but what happens to my time investment, right? Same thing at the, the federal level. Any, anybody from Trump's campaign called any of you guys for your input about policies and stuff like that? You know, I know you're going to have a hard time, but they didn't call me either. But here sometimes is what we do. How many people does the state produce? None. How many people does the feds produce? None. Okay. All the people that fill these slots in communities must come from the first three circles. If I want to change circles four and five, what circles do I work in? One, two, and three. Okay. But a lot of times what happens with our concerns, and there are legitimate concerns, but we go out here and we invest a lot of time. And what is it we don't have? We invest a lot of time, but we have no influence. So let me ask this question. Have you ever been able to change anything where you had no influence? No. So I go out, I invest a lot of time, I have no influence, and I have just courted defeat. I have built a lifestyle that courts defeat, and you watch people who do this, and this is where they court frustration, and like a cancer, they take it right back into their home. Now, if you find yourself in a lifestyle where you're doing these kinds of things. You can do it with jobs. You ever seen people do that with jobs? Where the job becomes the most dominant thing? It's not that work isn't important because God's command about the Sabbath has another part to it, doesn't it? Six days thou shalt work and do all thy labor. And for a lot of us, that would be a really good antidote for the wasteful time that we have, is a good six day a week job. 
Now, if you were a young man in our apprenticeship program, it was mandatory that you worked a minimum of 72 hours a week. Because the scripture says that it is good for you to bear the yoke in your youth. Right? So if it's good for you to bear the yoke in your youth, what I would say to those young men is that God has put me in your life to ensure that you have an opportunity to wear the yoke. You need to learn how to do this. Is it tough? You bet. Is it designed to be tough? You bet. But you know what happens when young men go through that for two, three years? They gain confidence. They gain a manliness about them. And when somebody says, I don't know what I'm going to do with this 40-hour week job, you know what they do? <laughs> like, you've got to be kidding me. A 40-hour week job, we called that a vacation where I was from. Okay? And, I, and I'm serious, guys, about the work ethic, the, the work factor. Because God wants us to absolutely be in love with work. So... <clears throat> In, in these changes, work where you have influence, but when it comes to making changes, how about changes in that area, in, in our work lives? I was sharing with uh, some of the brothers. I have in my possession 1,200 interviews of Christians. Uh, I just gave them numbers. But of those 1,200, only two had a defined biblical theology of work and a defined biblical ethic of work. Two out of 1,200. And that was just shocking to me. Did all of them have a theology of work? Yes. Did all of them have an ethic of work? Yes. But only two of them got it from the Scriptures. So when you're working for someone else, what, what is it that is to be our ethic? And this is where we need to make major changes. You may need to make major changes. But the scripture says, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Does that mean for the pagan that I'm working for? It does, doesn't it? I am to do it as to the glory of God. And so it, it led me to start asking some questions as, as I traveled around and, and where the Lord had me work. And I began to ask questions of Christians. Have you ever heard a series of sermons on the biblical doctrine of work? Have you ever heard a series of sermons on the biblical ethic of work? Now, it's interesting to consider, isn't it? We're going to get a doctrine, a theology of work from somewhere, guys. The question is, where are we getting our doctrine? Most of those who are professing Christians that I deal with are identical with unbelievers in their view of work. That is the overwhelming majority of them. There's such an opportunity for us as Christians to make changes in this area. And, and you have to be intentional about this because just as soon as you try to do it, you're going to get tested with people, pressures, or problems. Okay? 
But there's a story in history that I think is one of the most dynamic stories of a congregation I have ever read. And I just shared this with somebody. And this congregation we know as the Pilgrim Congregation. You know, they were in England and it was against the law for them to leave. It was against the law for them to worship the way that they believed they ought to worship. So they were by uh, elimination criminals. Uh, because it didn't matter which one they did. They're, they're, they're criminals. And they finally get out and they go to Amsterdam and they're there for two years and then they move down to Leiden and they're in Leiden for two years. Now understand the circumstances of these guys is that persecution raged at this time and there were, during this time period, about 200,000 Reformed believers who were on the move at any given time from persecution. And they were flooding into Holland, and so you got this labor pool, right, that just all kinds of workers come in there, and you got a bunch of McDonald's jobs. So what happens to the prices of wages at McDonald's? It goes down, because I got this labor pool, and I kind of get the selection, right? And so they were poverty-level jobs, and these people were barely surviving. And, and so they uh, work. And two years after they've been in Leiden, the Leiden magistrates put on the public record one of the greatest testimonies of a congregation I personally have ever read. And the magistrate said that if any of the merchants in that town discovered you were a member of that congregation, they would hire you without further questions. So careful was that people to keep the integrity of their word and to do that which was assigned to them. That's incredible, isn't it? Now, how many people do you think that were in that congregation? 600. These people had a dominant impact in that culture. Tremendous influence. So, if you need to make changes in your work, one of the things I suggest, keep a notebook on your work. There are people that God will bring across, you know, the boss. And you'll get the Gentile who loves to lord it over them. I know none of you have ever experienced that, but you probably will. And what are the changes that you should make as it relates to that type of a person? And what are the opportunities for change? Uh, I often share this story because it was a great blessing to me. Uh, there are two men in my town several years ago uh, because I'm an advocate of faith for all of life. I actually believe the Bible applies to every single thing. If the question comes up at City Hall, we ought to turn to the Bible. If it comes up over taxes, let's talk about the Bible. If it comes up over economics, let's go to the Bible. Education, let's go to the Bible. And so, and these guys go to church. Uh, and, and so these two guys, uh, this almost happened simultaneously, but it was a little bit apart. And the one guy says to me, I hate you, and I hate everything you stand for. And by this time, I had a little bit of maturity about me, and I recognized what this was. And I reached out my hand, and I said, man, this is awesome. And the guy, he just reacted, right? He just, you know, you stick your hand out, so what did we do? He stuck his hand out, and we shook. And I said, this is incredible. How faithful God is to send me people like you. And he's looking at me like I have lost my mind. And he said, what are you talking about? I just told you I hated you and I hate everything you stand for. I said, I get it. 
this, this is just outstanding. And I said, do you realize that the Lord Jesus Christ commands me to love my enemies? And before I can ever learn that kind of love, I need one thing. Okay? i got to have an enemy. And God sent you. This is awesome. And the guy just, he didn't know what to say. And this happened to me again about two days later. So I figured maybe they had a conversation. The guy was like, you know. And so every year, I would go to this guy. And I would say to him, let me take you out for lunch. I'm just so thankful. In my, now, I live in a small town, guys. And so we, if we were downstairs town uh, at the square, he would literally walk across the road to keep from being on the same side of the sidewalk where I am. But yet God used this man in my life. I was like, Lord, I need to learn how to love people like this. Anybody, you said that even the publicans, right, love those that love them. And you helped this guy to identify that's not the situation here. And so five years later, he consented to let me take him to lunch. Five years. And so I take him out to lunch. He said, I don't want you to get the wrong impression. I still don't like you. I thought, we're making progress. Did you notice the language change? He no longer was telling me he hated me and he hated everything. He just didn't like me. Well, I've had that problem with a mirror. So <laughs> anyway, the, the other guy, uh, what finally broke it was our, our ministry to widows in, in our community. We, we do projects for widows where we'll repair their roofs or their flooring or, you know, plumbing or, or things like that. And, and we have people all across denominational lines that will come and they will help with these projects and we have unbelievers. And I knew this guy was talented, so finally we got him to come. And now he helps with these projects. And he no longer even tells me he don't like me. Now we're not buddies. And he makes sure that's clean, but I, you know, are clear. Uh, but the other guy was two years later. And, and, and so God had me go through this process because, you know, I thought if I loved them real good for six months, well, I can tell you that didn't work. I needed the training to learn how to be long-suffering with people who did not like me. And I had done them no injustice whatsoever. And I, and I was aware of that. I mean, I wasn't ignorant that I had done no injustice to these people. Uh, they just didn't like the fact that the Bible applied to everything in life because of whatever their motivations were. So there are changes that we need to make when it comes to how we deal with other people. We need to accept those challenges and deal with them. In Romans chapter 12, these changes can come about in such remarkably wonderful ways. I mean, what if God sends you someone who's such a difficult person? You know, we are to be kind to our masters who are of our faith, but are we exempt if they're harsh and rude? We're not. And in Romans, we have this conduct pattern that says to us, be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. We need to be intentional. We intentionally look at this, and yes, this is evil. We, we can identify, and we're going to overcome it. 
So we make these changes on these things, and I want to encourage you to, to do those things. So <clears throat> when you look at changes, here's the changes, uh, and I will wrap up with this. These are the normal ways that people make changes in their Christian life. Now, you're going to make changes. The question is what direction you make them in. Uh, you are going to change. Um, I remember a brother that went to college with a fellow. Met him 25 years later, and, and he was explaining to him how God had changed him and what God had taught him over those 25 years. And the fellow he went to school with said, well, praise God, I'm not changed. I'm still the same guy that knew back then. And he said, oh, brother, I'm so sorry to hear that. That in 25 years, God has not been able to teach you anything else from Scripture. Pretty remarkable insight, isn't it? But in our following of Jesus Christ in making changes, you are going to change. I am going to change. The question is how? We're either going to change into obedience of people who are obedient to God, or the other one is we become Pharisees. And that is a Pharisee is one who has an exalted view of himself. Okay? I mean, I thank God I'm not like you know, these other people. And they have all these rules so they don't have to get involved with the riffraff of culture and society. But primarily, it's a pride issue. We become prideful about who we are and, and so forth. Or we become a humanist, an out-and-out -out humanist. Now, a humanist, the way you tell if you or I are becoming a humanist is that all the subject matters begin with us. And it starts with us. I feel, I think, it, rather than what God requires me to do, where I start with Him, and this is what God requires me to do. And so we have this, this analysis that we do that becomes acceptable to us because it sounds good. We start with ourselves. That's what humanism is. Mankind, man is the center of it, not God. Well, <clears throat> that, that can win you certain friends and, and, and influence certain things. And then we can look at God's law and say it's no longer necessary. And if we do that, then you and I are left blind because we have no direction. Because there will be a law. That is not the question, whether or not there will be a law. But it will be a law. What, what, whose law is it? Is it God's law? Or is it some other form of law? Now, typically, when we define away God's law, thankfully, as a culture generally within the church world, we're so inconsistent with that, we're actually not always that bad because we, we, we do we know theft is wrong right we don't steal is adultery wrong yeah those are laws those are God's laws do we know that covetousness is wrong yeah thou shalt not steal thou shalt not murder are we allowed to bear false witness against one another no we're not right or anybody else for that matter and then the other one is it gets into speculation. And you've seen people like, uh, we have this, this particular fellow, and he's always speculating about the unknown things. Like, for instance, his, one of his great questions was, I will make you, you know, he says to Abraham, like the sands of the sea. 
And of course, there's all kinds of things where he's talking about in terms of great numbers. But his great speculative thing is, what if he means the number of grains of sand in the sea? And he's got all this speculative theory and, and other people, you know, speculating about the future. Right? I mean, we have a lot of that. I, I mean, with all the stuff going on in the Middle East right now, the speculation is just running rampant. And uh, I knew the guy who wrote the book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Any of you guys ever heard of that? Uh, all the guys my age are going, and nobody else. <laughs> and, and, and so there's all this speculation stuff. And it, remember what we read in the Scripture, the secret things belong to the Lord but the things that are revealed belong to us. What we, the changes that we need to pursue are the things that God requires of us to change in our thinking, in our speech, and in our behavior, our conduct. And this will be lifelong. It will involve every relationship you have. And it's constantly changing and hopefully for maturity. We want to mature. We want to be the grown-ups in the room. So... Uh, as you think about going forward in life, realize that you, you are going to change. Be intentional about it. Be purposeful about it. And in, surround yourself with good counsel. Because the scripture teaches us, a companion to wise men will be wise, but we make our plans with the advice of many counselors. And it's very rich and rewarding to have counselors. And one of the things I will cur encourage you as I close with this session. I have the privilege of uh, some lifelong friends. I have friends who have been for a long time. And one of the things I've learned and God has brought me to the practice of is that once, if not twice a year, I go and sit down with my friends. These are brothers. They love me. I know they love me. They love God. But they literally rip my life apart. Everything from my relationship to my wife, to my businesses, to how I'm handling my money. And what they're trying to do is to find out how consistent I am with what I claim to believe. And it is a painful process. Because you know what they're able to do is they're often able to surface my hypocrisies. But those are good brothers. And it's good for my life. Even when it hurts, when it's painful. And I've had them sometimes say to me, Tim, you know, you just need to get serious with God. That's the reason you're not changing. Or why you do this, because you're just not serious with God. And they're not willing to accept my platitudes because they love me. It's brother. As you... Men grow and you get older. Let me encourage you to develop you some friends like that. That can walk with you like that because it is so rich. These men know. Uh, they don't know my heart like God knows it. And I praise God for that. But they know enough of it to know how to ask certain questions. They've been at this long enough till uh, they know how to ask certain questions. And... Uh, it is a wonderful thing for us as Christians to be able to change and to grow together. But change will be a part of our life. Father.
you have commanded us that we are not to be conformed to this world. And Lord, we pray that through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the people of God that you will teach us to be aware and to be uh, sensitive to the evil around us and even where it slips in in philosophies. And that you will teach us and educate us about doing that which is right and good in the eyes of the Lord. And that we will be transformed, we'll be changed a little by little so that we grow continuously to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that we so understand the Word of God and how it affects our behavior that it causes us to grow up into Christ. Lord, I pray for my brothers here that you will be pleased to challenge them as they lay on their bed and they commune with you at night. Oh Lord, that you would draw them so close to you and reprove them and correct them and instruct them in righteousness and teach them. And Lord, raise up these brothers who are the, the, the teachers and the counselors that they would be such a benefit in encouraging the Christ that there would be warrior hearts and souls raised up with this group of young men that will go forward and plant the banner of Jesus Christ upon the places where you call them. And that they will just be thrilled to be soldiers in His army. For Christ's sake.